very warm welcome to the next episode of our Leaders for Humanity series. And today, I'm extremely proud to have with us a philosopher and psychologist who is not only uh, well-versed on both disciplines, but also writing about these disciplines in very exciting ways, quoting many of my preferred movies. And I want to start us off with one quote um, that he is giving in his book, which was by Fight Club. This is your life and it's ending one minute at a time. And I think what a better start could we have into one of our episodes. And therefore, let me introduce um, with a lot of pleasure, uh, Frank Martella. Terve, Frank, how are you doing? Terve, terve. Great to be here. <laughs> and terve, for those of who, who don't know Finnish, terve is like the high in the Finnish language. And then Frank is in Helsinki. So it's a great pleasure to have a European philosopher who is a cool philosopher. And I actually, Frank, I prepared, I think I need, I need to wear hats now, but I only found this very bizarre hat. So it's, that's not going to help. So we're going to have to go without. But a cool and kind philosopher, if I can say that. And uh, people who have followed our series will remember that Blaine Fowers was another uh, philosopher philosophical psychologist who came at the questions of the good life from the angle of virtue ethics and evolutionary theory. And today we will hear from Frank combining pragmatism and self-determination theory. So I think it will be very interesting to compare notes across the different sessions. But that said, as always, let me briefly introduce the flow. We will start with uh, just, uh, as always, telling you about the Good Organizations Project, what we are trying to achieve. We will then probably introduce Frank and Antoinette, as always, and hi to Antoinette, of course, as well. Um, Antoinette will introduce Frank properly. Then uh, Frank will hopefully share a little bit about himself with us, and then we will start into our usual inquiry. And what is the Good Organizations Project all about? It is about finding ways to create organizations that are, as the, as the title says, good and <laughs> organizations. So the, the idea is that we are um, trying to find ways for today's organizations in this complex environment in which we all are to become good actors in society, to create a positive environment for the communities that they um, bring together, and finally to be positive breeding grounds and enabling good lives for all the individuals that make up these organizations. And I think in this, in this context, um, we are always asking three standard questions. What is good? What is a good organization if we try to operationalize the moral principles that we are building upon? And finally, how can we all become good? How can we help in enabling uh, good organizations and ultimately good society? So that's a little bit the the scope and scale of the inquiry and in the project, as you know by now, we're trying to involve lots of thinkers offering different perspectives and especially people who can break, bridge multiple disciplines. And Frank is bringing in thoughts not only from psychology and philosophy, but also from some personal experimentation, for example, in, um, in hospitals, in public care. And it will be very interesting to learn a little bit about how he's operationalizing all his thoughts in the company that he's created. And with that, I will, without any further ado, hand over to Antoinette for a proper introduction. 
Well, you already did almost a very nice introduction, but I still um, try to bring in some more details. So, Frank Martella, or oh no, I, I probably now pronounce it wrongly, <laughs> is a no, philosopher <laughs> and a psychologist specialized in the question of meaning in life. And that makes him one of the very few remaining species who understand that philosophy and psychology belong together and are in fact intertwined. And only if intertwined, in my opinion, can much better explain what a good life is all about. So untypical for a scholar, um, he's exceptionally broad and engaged with practice, a bridge builder, as Oti already said, offering insights into questions as daring as what is meaningful work or how can science enable us to make sense, to find ways in our enmeshed experience or messy life um, or as you explain it in your own words, much nicer, science represents a noble attempt to generate together as general and warranted conclusion as is possible for fallible mortal beings and trapped to live in current historical situations. Here, here, please scholars. And maybe his most daring question is, how can we use our free will in an intelligent fashion for the good of us and others? So Frank is a university lecturer at Aalto University Finland. His scientific work is expanding at a breathtaking pace. I really have to say because we had the feeling that whilst we were preparing at least two further new articles became published. And yet he still finds time for his family and for engaging with uh, this important dialogue with the world out there. Important especially also because you're a pragmatist. So he has written a book for a broad audience on a wonderful life and has spoken to more than 100 audiences worldwide on that topic. For instance, invited lectures, uh, including Stanford University and Harvard University. He's been interviewed for a number of fancy magazines such as the New York Times, um, the, the Discover magazine, Le Monde and Süddeutsche Zeitung. And maybe you can even speak German because you often cited. And he also founded a company with the purpose to bring more meaningfulness into organizations. So that's why I, what I mean with a real broad, well-rounded, engaged scholar. I'm very, very happy. We are very happy to have you here. Um, and as usual, um, if somebody else does the introduction, probably the most important things are left out. And that's why the first question to you is, if you had you, uh, to describe yourself in a few attributes, what would be important to you? What would be the headlines about Frank? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess like, of course, like apart from work, you know, given that I have like three small children who are like 10, eight and five years old, then like being a dad and being part of the family is quite a big part of my life right now. So that's kind of like one of the key things in my life. But as regards work, yeah, I guess like you already said quite like the main main headlines of, of what, what I do as, as work. So I guess I'd be always kind of trying to figure out what is what is the good life for us human beings and how can we live like better lives. And of course, like to answer that kind of question, one cannot stay within the kind of like the constraints of one science, but one has to like step into philosophy, psychology, and even even some other sci sciences in order to like have like a broader understanding on what that kind of question means and how to answer it. So yeah, I guess like that's I started my career in philosophy like as an undergrad, and from there I then like realized that you know philosophy as such is not enough to answer these questions, but one has to kind of like try to answer the question utilizing quite many different ways of kind of ways ways of inquiry 
that these different scientific disciplines are. That's it. We, Antoinette and I, when we started this inquiry, we dubbed this our midlife um, crisis project. And to a degree, I think some of your um, experiences resonate very strongly. And I want to ask you a question that is um, exactly the question you asked yourself at the beginning of your book on the wonderful life, which is where um, were you when the meaningless of life hit you first? And then maybe looking back, where did you find most meaning afterwards? Mm, I guess like the, if I have to think about when did I start to think about these questions of meaning, probably one starting point was this book by Hermann Hess, this German author has this book like this, Narcissus and Goldmund, I think it's the title in English. And I read that book when I was in, I think I'm 14 or 50 years old. And I think remember that book made like a big impression on me because like there were these two main characters in the book and they were living like quite different kind of like lives. One of them was like in, the, in a monastery and living very like this contemplative life, not doing much like outside the monastery, but like, you know, reflecting, reading and so forth. But the other ones like, other ones like was living in the world, you know, indulging in all kinds of pleasures and getting into fights and having like affairs with women and so so forth. And still like, kind of like they were talking with each other from time to time and kind of like the book didn't like take sides. It presented these are two different ways of living, but did, didn't like, you know, say that, hey, this one way is the correct way of living and this other way is like the wrong way of living. But both of them seem to be quite happy living the kind of life that they were living. So for one person, the one lifestyle was like suitable and for the other, the other lifestyle was suitable. So I remember that that made like a big impression on me that, hey, there might not be like, you know, just one way of living one's life, which is good, but there might be like several ways. So that's probably like, there might be other other like books that like made an impression, but that that's probably that book that has like stayed with me since, since that. And one of the key points where I started to reflect on these questions of how to live a good life. Interesting. And then you, you cite um, Kierkegaard, who I think in, in Out Out is taking a very similar inquisitive stance between extremes, but I'm sure we're going to come to that. Antoinette. Well, um, I, uh, that is almost uh, already leading us to the next question. Um, and um, because you were stating that you want to bring an effective revolution, emotional revolution to organizational research and philosophy. And again, that's probably not the easiest thing to do in order to really find these different ways of a good life. So uh, what is philosophy for you? I mean, there's probably a reason why you turn to a certain um, species of philosophy let's put it this way yeah i guess like most broadly said i would say that philosophy is about like thinking about thinking itself so like we when we think about the world we always do it through some like you know concepts some theories some more or less implicit or explicit ideas about how the world works and how can we have information about the world and how can we have reliable knowledge about the world and when we then start to think about the ways through which we are thinking, then we get into philosophy. So it's kind of like the meta level thinking in a way, trying to think, trying to figure out like how we are doing the actual thinking and what are the background assumptions that we have in our thinking, which we might not, not be like quite very aware, aware of in many situations and then trying to criticize those and try, trying to invent new ways of thinking, new lenses through which to look at the world. 
So that's kind of like what, what, how I would define philosophy as such. Someone suggested philosophy, the love affair with questions, which I thought was a, not <laughs> an interesting way of framing it. A yeah. question maybe, and then we start. Um, on the philosophy, are there some people, because you, you say in, I think in your dissertation, that even academics sometimes need to live life to understand what it's all about. And I'm just wondering, in your lived experience, are there some, some people that taught you something about how to do philosophy? So you mean like not living people and not like people I read about? I think um, when you answered the question on the dead people with the book, maybe maybe living people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess like one big influence was this Esa Saarinen is this like Finnish philosopher who actually like he, he, he was like my PhD supervisor, but already like before that, when I was an undergrad, I like I was I attended his courses and then I ended up being his like course assistant for a couple of years. And so Probably like of living philosophers, he's the one who has had like a biggest influence on my like thinking and especially like how I approach philosophy. And he was always like saying that, you know, he was trying to bring the philosophy from like academic quarters to more like engage with living. And he's kind of like, he said that his, his main method is actually lectures that he has realized that, okay, he has written many books and, and so forth, but still the like the living context of a lecture where he's trying to, trying to make people think you know he doesn't want to give answers but like just give examples give stories and various ways to try to stimulate people to start thinking for themselves so it's like philosophy of the everyday and philosophy applied to each and everyone's life was like his big thing and i think like i've taken quite much from him and also wanted always like to keep my philosophy engaged with the living world and how, how we are actually living our lives so not getting too tangled with these highly theoretical, far removed metaphysical questions, but more with the questions of, as regards how should we live this life and what are the conditions for a good life and meaningful and meaningful life. Interesting, and I think we were going to come to that again with your notion of caregiving, where always some of that transformational stance you're bringing where you care about the other person to develop their thinking, which also reminds me of Carol Sanford, who we interviewed some time ago, who was saying, we never give advice. We try to enable people to think what she calls essential thinking or living system thinking. Um, on this notion, let me briefly bring up the inquiry structure, as always, and then we start. Um, so I'm, I might be able to recover my slightly haphazard introduction because the coffee machine was going off in the back. So let me, um, who I confused earlier, again, give a little bit of structure here. So as always in our deep dives, we start with uh, the question of what is good. And in the case of Frank, we will merge that question with A, a pragmatist perspective and B, what is meaning versus good? What's that ethics, purpose versus meaning? What is, what is in that conundrum and, and how can we disentangle some of these notions and maybe even measure? Then we'll go to good organizations and see how we can build meaningful work, meaningful organizations. What are what is the advice that comes out of um, Frank's um, research and personal experience from caring to re-enchantment as our topic today is to um, some of the very practical or structural um, um, implementations that are possible. And then we will look at how can we become good? How can education, how can leadership, how can we as individual citizens become better at realizing 
uh, meaningful life and meaningful work. So this is the structure. And I will ask Internet to kick us off immediately in the first section. What is good? Wonderful. Uh, and I think you already explained it in other words, but of course you would like to have it a little bit more um, broader and um, more also, also deeper at the same time. You are of course working mainly with pragmatism and we are very excited to have a pragmatist philosopher with us. Um, so um, first of all, can you explain us and the readers, hearers a little bit of pragmatism? Yeah, so pragmatism is quite like loose philosophical tradition. So we can find like pragmatists who disagree on many kind of like topics. So that it's it doesn't like it's not like very strict about what are the fundamental issues of pragmatism. But I guess fundamentally it's about quite much about this. I would say like almost an attitude towards philosophy, where one is like not trying to seek like the final truths, but rather realizing that we fallible human beings are always in the midst of our lives already trying to figure out better ways of living, trying to figure out better answers, but we never get to like, kind of like the final truths, but ra rather we just like can improve upon our tools of thinking while living through these tools of thinking. So something like that will be like, I guess, like at the core of the pragmatic philosophical tradition. So trying to distance oneself from this more analytic philosophy which is often like trying to figure still hoping to find some objective truths or final answers to questions and realizing that that's something that we humans usually are not able to find but still we need like more but still answers to questions can be like more or less kind of like use of useful for our practical purposes and because of that we should like in the in the end kind of like rate or rate their answers based on like how much they do they serve our practical goals of living rather than like trying to find this just theoretical theoretical answers to theoretical questions without any practical and like implications and people interested in pragmatism and we interviewed ed freeman some time ago who was also pragmatist and who disturbed that also because we of course are searching for some final truth so to speak which as you say don't really matter in pragmatism uh, i think you're right it's about warranted assertabilities and yes. um i quote you more generally increased knowledge in pragmatism is not about getting the correct representation of reality in cognition but is an expression of an increase of the power to act in relation to the environment. So it's always about being more able to find good answers, so to speak. And um, I wonder what I found very interesting in your dissertation that you wrote. So I didn't finish the sentence. I, people um, who are interested should really read your work on pragmatism as an attitude. I thought that was brilliantly done. Um, trying to bring some coherence in different ways of pragmatism. Of course, you are very close to John Dewey, but you're looking at Williams, you're looking at Rorty, you're looking at a whole bunch of pragmatist philosophers, and you're trying to derive a common method. And we will come to that notion of method again in a second. But could you, what I found brilliant in your dissertation, you actually, and I had never realized that, you gave some historical um, locating for pragmatism as a philosophy where you explained what the historical context was in America at the time that was quite peculiar in bringing about pragmatism. So it was probably not coincidental. 
could you shed a light a little bit on those contextual conditions that led to a pragmatist philosophy? Yes, you might remember those better, better if you just read, read my article on the topic, but at <laughs> least like two key developments. One of them is like this, this sense of improvement was something that, you know, if you go back to the medieval times, people were more thinking that, you know, the world tomorrow will be quite same as the world today. So like a world like 10 years from now will be quite same as the world is today. So people had this more static view of history, static view of the world. But then there was, there was like things happening, like the industrial revolution and all, all, all that sort, sort of thing happening through which people became like more convinced that, hey, actually life is improving. You know, my children might have like better chance, chance to live, live a good life that I, I, I am having. Technology is developing, like med med medical care is developing, like government is de de developing towards like higher quality democracy and so forth. So the sense of progress, like life being, that, that we're able to improve our life, that was something that was quite strongly present and probably like even, even more strongly present in the US than in most other parts of the world. So that's one key, I think, background thing, thing about pragmatism that, that, that led, led to its development, that this, this idea of progress, ideas of things getting better, and this meliorism is one word that this John Dewey, for example, used, and it comes from this Latin word meliora, which means like better or getting better. So meliorism is one key part of pragmatism. Pragmatism, this idea that you know, if optimist thinks that the world is the best possible place, and the pessimist thinks that the world is the worst possible place, then the pragmatist comes along and says, it's not the best, it's not the worst, but at least there's something that we can do to improve it. So let's focus on that. Let's focus on the parts of the world that we are able to improve. You know, let's accept the parts that we cannot change, but, but, but there's always something. Sometimes it's quite small things, but there's always something that we can do to improve it. So let's focus on that. So that's one key part. And then I think like actually the evolutionary theory is another like important like background for pragmatist philosophy because Evolution was quite a new new thing in the late 19th century. Darwin had like just written his books and so forth. And then they started to think that, hey, if human beings are the products of evolution, then isn't our thinking also the product of evolution? And through that, they realized kind of like this, that thinking itself has probably developed for practical purposes rather than this like this removed thing from the world itself that is like, specialized in just contemplating for the contemplation's sake so instead like you know our, our ways of thinking have developed to serve some practical purposes so that's some another key background element that probably let let inspire the pragmatists to develop the kind of theories that they developed and that indeed it was sorry it's always the question of putting someone on the spot or paraphrasing you wrongly so i, I didn't want to kind of um, put words in your mouth on what you wrote in 2012. But indeed, I thought this historical locating in Simon Weston, one of our friends who's a um, psychologist, always, always calls it that, I thought was very important because there's this historical context which might explain why it came up, but might also show some of the limitations or at least the explanations as to where it is located. And indeed, this Darwinian this notion of fitness that is so prevalent in evolutionary theory, and when we spoke to Blaine Fowers about bringing virtue ethics and evolution together, that was a key concept. And I thought, oh, that's uncanny. It's also prevalent in the nascent, so to speak, of, of pragmatism. But I wanted to pick up maybe one other thought, which was this notion of 
um, John Dewey and others uh, suggesting that pragmatism above all is a method. And then I was stunned because in your, in your dissertation, you have a chapter on the metaphysics of pragmatism. And I was saying, well, actually, if it's a method, it doesn't have a metaphysics because it's kind of, it's not really an ontology, it's a method. So in my order of the world, which is ontology, epistemology, methodology, method, method is at the back end. And I thought one of the kind of problems slash benefits of pragmatism, it's almost ignoring the necessity to have a specific ontology, axiology, epistemology. Well, actually epistemology, not because it, it is an epistemology. But I was interested by the, by the fact that you went into metaphysics and then you argue that the ontology is experiential, unsurprisingly, because that's this experiential flavor of um, um, uh, pragmatism. And uh, you, you use the word epistemontology almost to kind of say, the ontology is embedded in the experiential nature, this trial and error, because the other thing that you point out is that all the founders of pragmatism were scientists and they were all using the scientist method in their laboratories, so to speak. So could you just kind of, could you help me here? Why are you trying to bring in the metaphysics and is it really there or are you taking some shortcuts here? Yeah, I guess like that, that's, that's, it's a complicated topic, but what I would say that is that in order to have like ontology, we already have, we, we need, need to get it from somewhere, you know, we have to, that because ontology usually is like this very basic ideas about what exists and what doesn't exist. And in order, in order to have that, we have to get it from somewhere. And I guess like the pragmatist in that sense starts more from the inquiry itself. So inquiry is something that seems to be taking place, you know, experiencing seems to be taking place. And from that, then we can then through this inquiry, then we can make some conclusions about what the world might be like. But traditionally, philosophy has like quite often started from the ontology and then going to the epistemology and so forth. But Ragnar is trying to say that, you know, what in the end, at the end of the line, there's nothing fun, not, nothing like sure that we can say about the ontology as such, that we can, we just have to accept that we are here, we seem to be experiencing something and this experience seems to be unfolding. And when we are navigating this experience, we might like recognize various regularities, various things function in a certain way. And through that, then we can slowly start to build this ontology, but it's more an ontology in use rather than like some like removed ontology that we can take for granted. So we cannot like, it seems that, you know, you know, there's an external world that seems to be functioning according to the laws of nature. That seems to be something that we have by my personal inquiry and also the inquiry that humankind has done seems to be like confirming in quite, quite many ways. But it's something that we have like confirmed through inquiry rather than that something that we can know that existed before inquiry. So in that sense, I guess like Dewey would be saying that inquiry precedes ontology and epistemology, but if we start from inquiry and from that then through the inquiry, then we can start to make these more warranted conclusions about ontology and epistemology, but, but they're always something that we derive through inquiry. Just one final sentence answer. This is where we also lose our viewers because throwing around these terms, of course, is, <laughs> is, is the pri privilege um, of the philosophers, so to speak. But I think some of the terminology, even for the non-philosophers, became very useful because very often we need those terms to examine what we believe and go into this inquiry, which you 
And Antoinette, I'm sure we'll come to that um, with the pragmatist inquiry when we come to academia. But uh, I wanted to just want, make one final point on this ontology, which has caused me some headaches, because I was of the conviction that the ontology that is closest to a pragmatist viewpoint is phenomenology. So I was going to Heidegger and Husserl, but of course, if you look at both Heidegger and Husserl, they would suggest there are pre a priori mechanisms of interpreting reality that are, so to speak, um, before the experiment. So I would, so maybe phenomenology is partly is close to pragmatism, but not quite the same, especially when we go to transcendentalist type of phenomenologies. But I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, I think that there's many similarities between how pragmatists view the world and how the phenomenologists view the world. And what, what, what the, so the ontology have like similarities, but I guess the pragmatists emphasize more the fact that like, even when we are trying to figure out this, kind of like the fundamental facts about the ontology or about our experience, it's something that we do while living and while having these practical matters that like that we need to be taken care of. So like no matter how con no matter how good philosophical theories we have about yeah. how the world works, we already utilize certain like kind of like the practicing theories through which we are able to, you know, get through our every everyday life. So if if I'm thirsty, then I have this theory that you know water is a good way of like you know good 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 thing to have in that kind of situations and then my my practical experience has been that when i'm thirsty drinking water usually has been help, very helpful so that's a kind of like like a theory in use that i have about the world and then i might have in my more contemplative moments i can then like criticize that and reflect on how, how the world actually what is like the fundamental nature of the world but still like in my everyday life, I utilize all these, all sorts of like, you know, theories that I already sort of believed in so much that I base my actions on those theories. But I mean, the way I understand it, but we are getting to that when we are talking about abduction is that this is kind of where you might start, but you of course also have hypothesis. So in that sense, it's kind of a going between and then uh, making your hypothesis better and so on and so forth. I mean, this is part of it um but there i just have to read that one citation then we go to ethics um i think it also probably has to do with um a lot of philosophy not looking at um the real life so dewey once put it that there is a sentimental indulgence for a few or it's a mere arbitrary dogma and so i have the feeling it has to do that they don't do the abduction and that this is the main one of the main aspects they want to highlight with that but i mean just um, from another point of view. Um, but actually, uh, I would like to move us into ethics, into moral philosophy from a pragmatism perspective. And if we take what you just said, um, then here again, it's about the melioration. That's, the, that's one of the main things. So you work with, with ethical theories as tools. For instance, you look at past moral experiments and knowledge. You can use them as tools of criticism, sorting devices, and also needed vocabulary. So maybe you can first explain um, us that a little bit, and then I would further drill down if that's possible. Yeah, so, so when we look at like ethics and morality from the pragmatic point of view, then of course, like even in that domain, we don't have like any kind of like fundamental truths that we can take for granted that from which we can like start, start from, but it's more something that 
again we have some we have gained some more or less warranted ideas through inquiry through living so we have like strong intuitions about certain things being morally wrong certain things being morally right and then when we start to look at these intuitions and of course moral, moral philosophy quite often is about this like making this our intuitions more systematic trying to figure out what are the background laws behind these intuitions and so forth so this is kind of like the kind of like the, kind of like the moral work that philosophers trying to do is trying to sort out our often quite messy intuitions about morality into a more coherent system and through that then we, then we can use when we have this system then we can use that again to apply in individual cases when we are thinking about an individual case is it moral, morally right or morally wrong to do this thing then we can the, all the tools that this inquiry has created can help us to make sure that we take all all issues into, into account when making our practical decisions or doing something or not doing something but of course there are probably two um criticisms you always hear in that regard if you explain it um to people first of all um isn't that then in the end still relativism and the second thing is of course um do we have moral progress and could there be also moral progress towards a more universal universal sense um of morals which i believe by the way you're trying to do with this much self-determination theory work you're doing yes i guess like as regards progress i would say that there's like that there might not be like you know some universal notion of progress but at least there's like various sorts of more local progress so that we can say that like at the moral system which is like more internally potent is better than the moral system has like various internal contradictions we can say that the moral system that more of the humanity is ready to accept is better than a moral system that very few in the very few people are ready to accept so for example like you know the invention of human rights is to be something that i would count as moral progress and it's something that i, I call it like invention because I, I don't think that you know they they were not like ready-made somewhere waiting to be discovered but that more it was like some again some philosophical work through which we try to figure out what are the kind of like the moral things or what are the things that like people across culture seem to be valuing and then trying to make that into some systematic systematic framework is something that we can we can like call progress in many many ways because it seems to be like something that is quite useful for many of us and quite quite something that most of us are really ready to accept so there's like this local progress pro, pro, local types of progress but there's like but even our standards of progress need to be you know questioned from time to time because they are also something that we have like acquired through inquiry. So we might have like certain standards of progress for morality, internal coherence, acceptance by as many people as possible and so forth. But then 50 years from now, we, we might have like invented some new standards of to, to evaluate the goodness of moral systems and realize that we have to like take some more broader ideas into account when evaluating them. But that however would still mean sorry Oti, just one question more that is it okay yeah, yeah, no, of course. Um, yep. <laughs> I, I it just caught my interest because you, we're talking about local progress and i mean um that of course would still mean we would have um um 
very much difficulties to say human rights have to be applicable everywhere. I mean, this is, of course, a universal um, uh, account that we want to have maybe a progress more towards that direction. Um, so I'm wondering, um, you say it's invention, it's about inquiry, it's about what most people find okay. Is there also some more formal ideas how dialogues or inquiry could look like that we can say it really goes towards more universal, not only local progress? I guess like, so of course, like we can take the human nature as like one sort of standard to that, that so that we can also try to figure out what are the things that humans across the culture seem to be valuing, for example, you know, you know, easiest example is probably like, you know, pain and suffering, you know, mm -hmm. you wouldn't find many people who say that, you know, th those are good things. So most people, most people across the world would agree that, you know, causing pain to other people is morally bad, you know, unless there are some specific circumstances, but like, you know, if there's like no specific reason for that, then causing that kind of pain is usually considered as bad. So that's something that, you know, we can already take quite, uh, quite as a quite a universal moral truth and it's it's universal moral truth because it's part of the human nature as as any animal also human beings like you know suffering is bad for human beings we, we want to avoid suffering so certain things but by studying the human nature trying to figure out what are the key needs of human beings we can like arrive at these conclusions about morality that that would be like acceptable ac across the cultures mm -hmm. I think if we're hitting exactly the same challenge that we discussed with Ed Freeman, as then in pragmatism being a method by definition, I would argue, there is no normative core. And you will always, therefore, you, there's a risk of going into incrementalism, into instrumentalism, into um, relativism, because you're starting from where you're starting and you might find out later that it wasn't a good start, let's say with slavery or with wars or anything that for the time seemed acceptable, but afterwards wasn't, or in one culture is tolerated in another not. And I guess um, Blaine Fowers tried to go into evolutionary theory and look at what makes a human human. So the, the notion of ergos that Aristotle uses to say, of a knife's a knife because it's sharp and it's uh, whatever, it's, uh, it's useful for its purpose, the same should go for humans. So what is typically human, let's go and investigate. And Blaine is writing extensively about that. You're coming at it from a similar angle, which is kind of saying, okay, I don't have a normative perspective. Let's look at what needs we have. And that might be a good idea. Of course, the risk is we're going into hedonism or individualism. And I think it's interesting how you then try to combine some of the self-determination theory with this notion of benevolence or other devices to bring some of the common good back. But it, it looks really like a, an incremental approach to say, shit, I cannot use religion. So how do I go and create something which is not normative, but still aspirational in bringing us forward rather than just incremental from where we are? So I want to go into this section now because you're writing extensively about meaning. And for us, the, the meaning versus good life is probably what we want to explore. So from an ethical standpoint, what's a good life? From a needs um, perspective, what, what is, um, is, is a... Is a meaning in life and then how do we combine it into what you call meaning fullness of life so to speak and, and thereafter work so could you take us through this a little bit and let me give you a few hints because here you really kind of created some 
um, challenges for us because in the last 20 years, I think you've changed your minds a few times in this space <laughs> as to what meaning is and how to define it and how to measure that, it. So, that, that's mailerism in action. That's mailerism in action. Only that. That, yeah. same, with that, same with Ed Freeman. You, yeah, you if, could, if, if I would agree with everything I wrote like 20 years ago, then there wouldn't be any progress. Yeah, yeah, Russ trying to wrap up everything you've done. It was uh, like <laughs> you didn't hear us screaming. It's like, using another name for this now so i think what we want to get to is what's your latest thought and i just want to give you um, a few pointers so one you start with Camus, which is again it's interesting with the notion of absurd right so life is absurd in as much as it is meaningless there is no meaning if we don't have god as sartre says then kind of everything is allowed we don't have religion anymore so um, life doesn't have a meaning but we feel it's very meaningful for us so this absurdity in Camus which he writes about also in, in his plague, um, is the starting point, right? So what do we do from there? And you're going into meaning in a number of ways. You look at the dimensions. In one article, you, you write about significance in relation to self-realization and purpose. Then you look at coherence. You're looking at significance. You're looking at, again, purpose, worthwhileness, and so on. What's your latest thinking? How would you define meaning and how does it compare to the good life? Yeah, I guess like of these notes, the good life probably is the most broadest concept. You know, like if you think about the good life, it's like involves all the things that are good in life in a way. And so that's like the broadest, like the good, good life involves whatever makes certain life better than another life, like based on some like individual perspective based on some like more shared perspective and in, in i guess like the first notion that we might then make is that this between these various axiological values so axiological values are things that are like, like valuable by themselves so instead, instead of something being like instrumental so to something else we, we can say that certain things seem to be like valuable as such and when philosophers discuss these axiological values then this happiness versus suffering is usually the kind of like the most most shared axiological value. Everybody ag agrees that okay, that's something that you know people value. You know, if you have if I have to choose between two lives, one of them is like full of suffering, one of them is full of happiness. If I know nothing else about these lives, of course I'm gonna choose the one with more happiness. So that's one key part, one one of key way of like evaluating the good goodness of life. How much there's happiness? How much there's like suffering? And then another axiological value that is often mentioned is in this morality, you know, that people, if, if I have to choose between two lives and I know that, you no, know, one of them is morally good, one of them is morally bad, I, I might, might choose like the morally good life, even if, if I know that there's more suffering in that life because if, compared, compared to a life that has like slightly less suffering, but which is like, I know that I will do horrible things in that life. So morality seems to be like another way of evaluating the goodness, goodness of life. And then meaningfulness has been argued to be kind of like a third way of like evaluating the goodness of life. But in some situations, people might choose to have like lives that are high on meaningfulness instead of like just lives that are like high, high in happiness. So, you know, for example, living a life where you're able to you know serve the humanity feeling that your actions are like mattering to other people you're able to do good things to other people that might like have like some well-being consequences to you 
but even beyond those well-being consequences you might still feel that you know this meaningfulness is something to be had as such it's something that makes life valuable as such so in that sense like the, the distinction between good life and meaningful life one could say that good life includes all possible axiological values and then when we think about these axiological values few key axiological values at least are happiness morality and meaning so these three are at least like quite often recognized as separate axiological values but then the next question of course is like how to define the meaning itself because it's probably the hardest to define of these things and then we get into this more detailed discussion about this coherence purpose significance and so forth well, I mean, um, I think when we look at the morality, um, there we started to have discussions among us because we weren't sure um, where you were exactly going. And I think that has mostly to do with significance and purpose because that is also defined in several papers slightly different, but it, I think in an important way different. I mean, once you say broader purpose, which sounds to me a little bit like uh, more of this objective that it's valuable for humans in general beyond being valuable just because it's preferable to one individual. And then in, in another paper, it sounds again, it's more like whatever life goals I aspire to, um, it just needs to be future oriented and I need to have these life goals. So there's that, that's for, maybe we just take this one for a starters because there, um, I was starting to get a little bit confused. Um, what do you really have in mind? Is it more this objective version or is it more the subjective, whatever is good for the individual? Maybe you can explain that a little bit. Yeah, and I guess like, of course there's, yeah, purpose is a bit like that. It, it can like involve both. That purpose can be like taken more narrowly as just involving having these future oriented goals that somehow you find valuable and worth pursuing so that's one way of like thinking about purpose that you know one that that our lives become mean, more meaningful if we feel that you know i have like some goals in the future and which make make my present actions and my present activities and choices somehow worth doing so that's this future oriented goals is one one aspect but then the other aspect is about this like this contributing towards other people you know being able to do something good to other people and when I talk in this one paper, when I talk about broader purpose, I probably like that. That's kind of like combined these two aspects, and then in the other other paper, I probably more kept these two aspects separate. So like having this future oriented goals at one thing, and then whether that goal contributes to somebody else and make makes the world a better place. That's kind of like that's a different different thing than just having a purpose, having a goal as such. So yeah, that's that broader purpose includes those both things but then we can like make this even more distinction between purpose as such and then this contribution as such but then uh, still because i also read and i like the the method much um the paper where you look at these life goals and where you come up with a new circumplex model but i but you have things in there like community contribution mastery health self-expression so i was also wondering where is this coming from i mean they seem to be sometimes uh, related to more broader purpose sometimes not i don't know how they have been derived maybe you can just explain that to us maybe that is this pragmatist aspect but just that we understand that a little bit better can i come in here before you go yeah. frank because i think um in your book basically i took away the formula sdt plus b 
You know, so your self-determination theory with the three realms of competence, of, of relatedness and belonging and autonomy, plus on a hunch, you say, you put in benevolence and you develop the concept further. Um, and I, when I, in terms of the wheel that Antoinette mentions, my thinking was you had taken the needs perspective, associating specific purpose, so to speak, as you say in your book with self-determination theory. So what you need will make you feel better about your life and then you expand on this notion of community and relatedness with the notion of benevolence and you develop the focus on others and the wider community so that was how i understood the genesis of your thinking yeah so and i would say that yeah it's true that i probably my thinking is a work in progress and that, that this this magnum opus where all the questions you have are, are answered it's it's coming up in i don't know 2030 or something like that so in that 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 time probably hopefully i have, have like resolved all of the tensions in between these different different views that i've been having throughout the years but yes like this self-determination theory is one of the key theories that i've been draw, drawing from like for quite a long time and there there are there's this idea that there's these basic psychological needs which are like connected to our evolutionary nature or come from like what what it means to be a human being so in that sense it comes close to this idea from this virtue ethics about identifying what is specific about human beings. So the self-determination theory, I said like it recognizes these three needs and then I'd, I'd be looking at this benevolence or contribution as a potential fourth need. And we can think, think about this as needs. And, and when we think about this as needs, then they're of course like they're, they're subjective experiences in a sense, you know, that, you know, I want to, like in order to have this well-being benefits of contribution, I need, need to have this experience that I'm contributing. But at the same time, we can also look at them as values because from these, as needs, there's something subjective, but then at the same time, we also seem to be quite often valuing them as such, as such you know, the sense of contributing, being able to do good things to other pe pe people. It might be good for our well-being. It might be good. We, we might derive good feelings for doing it, but it seems to have like it, it seems to matter to us beyond beyond these good feelings that we get from there so in that sense i, I guess i'm going to argue for like this this dual dual idea of these needs that they they function as needs but at the same time because we have like started to value them we also value them as values as such so they they function both as needs and as values and probably kind of like disentangling those two aspect is quite quite hard sometimes because you risk always being hedonic but then it's kind of just what is the pleasure if my needs drive pleasure because of needs fulfillment and we're back with rousseau who, who stated that the kind of the general will is different from the will of all so it's kind of what what i might like or what i might feel good about in an emotivist fashion as mcintyre writes might not be what is the best for all and i think to a degree, in, in one of the models you provide between doing well and feeling well, there is an, there, it is not so simple as having arrows between the two because there might be tension. And as Aristotle would suggest, feeling appropriately is what is required to attain not only my own good life, but societal good life. And I think, it will, I mean, we are on the subscription list for your 2030 book with all the answers. <laughs> that much is for sure. But yeah. um, it, it was, to a degree, it was very nerve-wracking because you yeah, changed yeah. your mind a few times. On the other hand, I have to say, your your exploration 
in many ways felt very similar and the pain in that so to speak felt very similar to what we are also experiencing in a world that is pluralistic where universal norms are gone uh, ten commandments uh, won't work um, and also shouldn't work what can we all agree on and i think it will be interesting to see where you land because in our view self-determination theory was too individualistic and the work that we will come to in a short while on your intersubjectivity for us was very very interesting because we landed there as well and we felt it wasn't yet integrated enough in your um, wonderful life because you bring in the interrelation uh, or the inter the, the relative um, ontology as part of the sense of belonging or need for belonging whereas we thought as you just said it's actually a separate axis almost right so what is it if we step into intersubjectivity then how does the world look like and how would need fulfillment look under that I shared identity almost but I thought that's yeah. kind of that that was a little bit where we landed um but it was very interesting to see what all means yeah yeah and i i agree that that's probably something that needs to be integrated better even with within my my thinking so as, as regard like as regard this this distinction between these need needs and needs and values one one like one example that i, I will give about that will be that of course like when we have this sense that we are contributing that that makes us feel good we know that from like empirical research that you know there's quite much research by me and by others on like that when we are able to contribute and have this sense of contribution that increases our sense of meaningfulness but like if i later find out that you know that for a for a couple of years i thought that i made a big contribution but then i later find out that i didn't make a big contribution let's say i will be like selling some some like i will be a drugs salesman selling some you know drug for some sickness and like thinking that i'm like making the humankind better because like i'm delivering these drugs to people then after two years i realized that the company that i worked for they the, the scientific research that was behind the drug but where like some there was some fraud so actually it's, it's no better than placebo and by replacing more e effective me me medicines i've done like that like the world is a worse place because i've been selling this drug mm -hmm. then in that situation i wouldn't be like that oh no 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 worries at least i got those, those two two years of good feelings so i care I, I not only care about these good feelings and feeling of contribution but i also care about the actual actually making the contribution so in that sense like there's the value aspect comes from comes that it's it, it was not about the good feeling but it was about making a contribution important i but, think and we will come to measures i think but you also argue in one paper for maybe research into more objective measures of that contribution to the good of all and i think that is very interesting i want to before I, I go back to Antoinette, i had one thing that i have to ask frank because you're writing about it um why what explains that finland i the nordic countries are they amongst the happiest countries in the world because i thought it was saunas but you say it's it's <laughs> heavy metal and, and kind of in, in a word what makes uh, those countries happier <laughs> yeah so it's true that like when, when this world happiness report another kind of like ranking of happiness they the nordic countries tend to come on top of the world like from like every time it's measured so in the world happiness report finland has been the happiest i think four years in a row and actually they're publishing the next next like next year's results in a couple of days so let's see if, if it's five fifth years in a row or not not but anyways it's going to be in the top 10 because finland and other nordic countries are always the top 10 and we investigated this with a couple of colleagues a few years ago for that this world happiness report and 
I, our main argument is that it's not about the culture, but it's more about the institutions, that the institutions seem to be the key, key thing. So it's not about the saunas, it's not about heavy metal, it's not about kind of like this hygge, which is this Danish word for this coziness, but it's more about that we have in the Nordic countries well-functioning democracy, like, like welfare, like relatively extensive welfare benefits, like unemployment benefits and free healthcare, maternity care and so forth. So through these like functioning institutions, people know that the state is usually state is able to take care of them better than in many other places, which means that because the, I think that the state itself cannot like produce so much happiness, but state states can can like remove quite many sources of unhappiness. So when the Nordic countries come at the top of the world in these rankings, it doesn't mean that there will be like more extremely happy people in Finland or other Nordic countries. If you walk the streets of Helsinki and look at the people, you wouldn't think that oh, they, they oh, these guys are like extremely happy because the Finnish people are known as this more melancholic. They have this more melancholic self-image and not known for displaying their emotions. But it's more that you know that there's less extremely unhappy people in the Nordic countries, and that's mainly due to these institutions. That's so one of the yeah. And one of the biggest like happiness gaps, I look at this data, it's like between Finland and Russia. And of course, like the reasons for the Russian unhappiness, the reason why Russia is one of the unhappiest places in Europe is exactly the same. You know, again, all those things that like speak for Nordic countries are lacking there, you know, functioning yeah. democracy, free speech, low corruption, and all of these things that are good in Nordic countries are something that are lacking there. And because of that, people are much unhappier in the, in, in the Russian country. So that's interesting because we have Bruno Frey here and of course Switzerland is always also very high in the rankings. Yeah, that's also true. also came up with institutions, but I hear an interesting difference. So you were saying that, that the, the state is taking better care of, whereas he was saying it's the participative democracy which makes people able to deliberate, um, which is more important. So we are almost in a relational ontology. That <laughs> he wouldn't like to hear that, but I'm just kind of... Um, hearing the differences. Um, yeah, so uh, now I have to do the difficult stuff again, but we don't want to leave that section before somebody explains us how to measure eudaimonia, because we haven't <laughs> found anybody <laughs> who can properly measure it. And I mean, you have like uh, several ways uh, in papers. I saw one paper where it was more about eudaimonic activities and motives. So is that measurable? How did you measure that? Or how is that measured? And then of course you have again, a lot of papers where it's more, even more towards the direction of self-determination theory. For instance, uh, you say it's intrinsic life goals, it's regulating behavior autonomously, so free will, and it's living a reflected life. So please enlighten us how to measure. Subjective well-being, which again, also you point to in some other papers. Well, we leave yeah. the subjective well-being away because that's too easy. You can do that later. <laughs> well, I think yeah, the question is, what is the best measure that we should adopt today? Yes, so eudaimonia is very like elusive concept. And the problem is that within psychology, when we measure well-being, there's like this, the most common way of measuring is this, this subjective well-being. This Edinger's way of measuring, which, which includes like positive feelings, negative feelings, and general life satisfaction so that's kind of like if you look at the psychological studies on happiness or well-being that's that's the three things that they usually measure and then 
eudaimonia has become that this kind of like this category that basically captures everything which seems to be related to well-being, but it's but which is not captured by these three things. You know, whether like you know, if you talk about mindfulness, if you talk about autonomy, if you talk about meaning in life, all of them these are like seem important to well-being, but they're not part of this subject of well-being. So eudaimonia, I think it has developed into this catch-all category of everything related to well-being, which is not not subject of well-being. And because of that, different measures of eudaimonia might include very different things. And because of that, they're like essentially not comparable with each other and cannot like build to any cum cumulative science. That's something that we argue in this paper with Ken and Sheldon, where we go through these various measures. And I don't remember how many, was it 45 different concepts or 60 different concepts that we found that have been part of some measures of eudaimonia, which is of course way too much. And I guess like what I would argue that no, of course, so eudaimonia might involve several things, but one core of it might be that if you, if you think about eudaimonia more, more as kind of like way of living rather than like experience. So there's certain experiences that we might, might have, but I guess like this Aristotelian root of eudaimonia is usually more about this way of living. And because of that, we are kind of like arguing that one key part of eudaimonia at least should be these basic psychological needs so that you know it's it's about functioning well in that life so if, if well-being is one part of like well human wellness then this well-doing is another part and for that we need to identify what are the kind of like the basic experiences that we require from our environment that like contributes that into this more well this more broader well-being so that's something that I think that there's there, there's not going to be like one true measure of eudaimonia in the future, but kind of like arguing that one key part that should be measured at least are these basic psychological needs, and then these basic psychological needs, if we measure them, then then they are going to be providing like factors that are important as such. You know, it's important to know whether people are experiencing a sense of autonomy, but they're also like something that are going to be are going to be explaining quite much of the well-being benefits that we get. You know. Or, when we know that a certain environment or a certain workplace or whatever gives people a sense of autonomy, then we know that it's probably also going to increase their sense of well-being, like more generally, this subjective well-being as such. So there's not going to be like one thing that is going to be that is this whole space of what, what concepts are part of Eudaimonia and it's like sorting out into more specific categories in a, in a way. That's probably my kind of like the final answer to the question that you know we should probably get rid of the whole concept of eudaimonia and you know, instead of that have like this more specifically defined concept so we might talk about you know subject of well-being as consciousness of three three parts then we might talk about psychological needs as an important part of well-being then we might talk about you know i don't know certain goals or optimism or meaning as important parts of well-being but they also should be like you know examined on their own own ground rather than competing which of them is eudaimonia which is not so in the end i would argue that eudaimonia as a concept is like does almost more more harm than good so instead of using eudaimonia we should use some more specifically defined concepts but i do hear uh, that you say well doing as well so this is the virtues part as i would translate it you talk about psychological functioning um human yeah. functioning ergon so this is uh, translated then into the basic psychological needs of Disa and Ryan, plus maybe beneficence. So um, I guess the only place where we would probably still 
um, argue or where I would argue with is that this is then always correlated to well-being. And as far as I can remember, that is not the case in, in an Aristotelian understanding. Only the virtuous people, which are very few, would always have this direct correlation. But I mean, still, let's just kind of say the doing and the psychological functioning. And yes, of course. Go on. Because then um, we come to that now. And I think here we've we come to a close on the what is good section. We've looked at yeah. a whole bunch of very interesting aspects, but I think from our view on Aristotelian teaching, the Nicomachean ethics, Aristotle brought for his son Nico, but the most important works is on politics. And of course, his notion would have been that a citizen who didn't contribute to the, um, to the polis, to the city, would have been a bit of a waste of, of space, a waste of time. So I think there is a and if the, you the, the, the F, explained us in <laughs> a very nice way. Yeah, but the concept of eftemonia always implies the role of the citizen in the polis and the contribution to a political community, not just any type of community. And I think, therefore, there's this, I think, a necessity to revise self-determination theories focused on the individual and to a degree, I will always argue, focused on positiveness, whereas the notion of citizenship, I think, of virtuous friendship is going further than that. And here, the, uh, the notion of institution become very interesting. So let's maybe go to the good organizations. How do we craft good organizations? And maybe just two entry points, if you allow us, Frank. One, so based on what we just discussed, good and meaning, how would you describe meaningful work? First question. And then how does that relate to the purpose of an organization. So what's a good purpose based on your view on meaningful work for an organization today? And maybe if you want to really um, um, play onto the previous discussion, you've written about the ontological, social ontology of purpose. So does purpose at the organizational level even exist? And if so, how? <laughs> Let's see if I remember all, all the questions that you were now asking in a row. So if, if I wrong, forget to answer one of them, you can get, remind me of those. But yes, as we got meaningful work, I would say that in the broadest sense, it's about all those aspects of work that are valuable that go beyond like, you know, the, kind of like the monet, monetary benefit you get from work. So of course, like one reason to work is that you get like the salary and you can like pay the bills and put food on the table and so forth. But at the same time, we not only work for money, but usually, or most, most, for most people, they find something else that is valuable in their work, you know, that they find that, you know, they feel that through the work, they're able to make the world a better place. They're able to con like help their clients, or they're able to be part of a community, or they're able to, you know, express themselves, do something that they really, really, really care about or are interested in. And all those other aspects, that's the meaningfulness in the most broad sense is about this what makes work valuable as such but what, what is valuable in, in the work which is not about money so that's how i would define the meaningful work and then of course like this purpose is something that has been like in the last years it, it's more and more be, become like something that is almost like a buzzword in the business community about this pur purpose and i guess like in this context the purpose usually means that you know some pro-social goal that's something good that the work is like contributed towards so again, like we, we talked about this dualism that sometimes purpose is more narrowly just like some goal in the future that something is valuable. And sometimes it's more this broader purpose where it's like, where it involves 
making the world a better place. And I guess when, when we talk about this purpose in the business context, usually we are referring it to, the, to the business doing something which is good for the humanity or somehow, somehow makes the world a better place. So, and in that sense, like as regards how this purpose and meaningful work, how, how they relate to each other, then I would say that this, if an organization has a high, like, some, some like very well-defined and accepted purpose, that's probably one key part of what makes this work meaningful for the employees. It's not all there is to, to meaningfulness of the employees, but it's one part that, you know, when I, when I think about more or less meaningful work, meaningful workplaces, if I feel that, hey, as part of this community, we have like this very strong sense of purpose, we are, we are making the world better through this and this means, then probably that's one key part that makes my work meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. But there might be other things that make it meaningful for me, like the community or self-expression and so forth, but at least it's one key part that usually makes the work, work meaningful for people. What I found even more intriguing um, beyond the purpose was your idea of enchantment and we just titled it Enchanted Organization. So let me go a little bit towards there. Uh, I think that you draw um, strongly on Bennett and you said uh, that enchantment is is uh, the feeling of being connected in an affirmative way to existence and to others. So maybe the relational ontology comes back here. And there were several things you were thinking about. You were writing about in your dissertation about caring connections. In one paper, you wrote about co-passion. So maybe we can have a look a little bit at what you have in mind with these and maybe also how organizations can enable that. So maybe we start with caring connections because I think this is something not a lot of people know. And um, if you want, you could even juxtapose it because we just had Jane Dutton here to the high quality connections. In what way is it different? What, what, what do you bring with this caring connections? Yeah, so this notion of caring connections, it, it originated from my, my, my first dissertation, which is on the organizational research. So, and there I actually, it was like this empirical work I just did in a nursing home. So I, I just like this qualitative inquiry that, that I did through interviews and also like this participant observation. So I, I was in a nursing home and then I was following these nurses throughout their day and like just looking what they were doing and how they were interacting with, with each other, how they, how they, were they interacting with the residents of this nursing home. And through, through this inquiry, I got like more interested in this, like this, how, especially this relationship with the nurses and the residents and how they interact and what are like, what are like these high quality interactions there? What, what are the key characteristics of that? And caring connection was like then the word that I use for these situations where the nurse and the resident seem to be kind of like somehow like quite deeply oriented towards each other. So both of them were kind of like present in the present in the present moment instead of like you know thinking about the future or the past. But they were kind of like and then they were acknowledging each other through looking at each other in the eye or talking to each other and so forth and then there was like this sense of caring from one to another. So they were just not, you know, sometimes the nurses were, did, did their things like quite like absent-mindedly, just like, okay, I need, need to take care of this thing. And they treated the resident more as an object. But in these moments, it was like more clear that there, that there was two human beings who were attuned to each other, caring about each other, sharing this moment with, with each other and knowing that they're sharing, that, that the other person is also present in the same situation. So that was kind of like the, 
what what I meant by this caring connection, and it was like in this one specific context that I studied in, and trying to figure out what 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 this interaction between the nurses and the residents could be at best. And I was feeling that you know these, these were moments that the nurses, nur because in in this context, in, in, the, in, in there's quite much talk about this emotional labor, you know, that this some interactions are quite quite draining for the nurses. You know, the the residents can be sometimes like quite even like quite hostile towards the nurses and it can be like for many many reasons they might have you know some problems problems with with their memories they have like some cognitive problems through through which they are not able to like so anymore interact in the in the best possible way there was for example this ex-boxer there who was like i think he was like eight years old and he was a boxer and and the nurses had to know that you know if you approach him in a certain way he interpret he, some some of these boxer reflexes comes comes in and he punches you in the face. So, that, of course, like you know, that that that's something that you know it's it's not nice to be punched in the face. So, but you, as a nurse, you have to kind of like accept that okay, that that person didn't mean that it's because of his condition that he's doing it, and you have to like still you know serve that patient the next day even though he he punched you in the face. But of course, like this kind of interaction can be draining. That you know that you have to, your feelings that you have to like suppress your feelings and get this professional professional mind and that's something that has been researched quite much and then i was trying to argue that in addition to these moments which are very like these interactions which are draining and emotionally kind of like toiling to the nurses there are also these positive moments from which the nurses actually can get quite much energy that when these caring connections emerge between the nurse and the resident both of them quite get quite much from that both of them experience them as highly meaningful encounters and both of them like get more energy from them than they kind of give energy in these sort of situations so is uh, this is of course then something which is in this relationship this is also um, as you have described it very nicely the long experience the attunement the systems and intelligence of the nurses but if we look a little bit more at the organization what um, did organizations do in order to help this or support this enchantment? Um, and did you also see things where you would say, well, that's the opposite, they were swarting, they were, were making it impossible? Yeah, I guess like that regards organizations, I guess these emotions are something that are not so often like acknowledged in many organizations. So one, one colleague of mine who was like, you know, doing these trainings for organizations about like emotions, one thing she always says that you know that like that some 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 people come to say that hey that, that emotions don't belong to the organization to the work life you know when when you come to work you have to forget about the emotions and then then she always like replies that hey actually the emotions are already there whether you acknowledge them or not they're, you know you're you're if there's human beings there's going to be emotions so you better learn how to deal with them rather than than think that they're not existing in the workplace and. So that's that's one starting point for for that acknowledging that there's there's gonna be this emotional layer in the work. People are gonna have like positive and negative emotions, whether you you want or want it or not. But that that's that's gonna be part of the organizational reality, part of the way people interact with each other. The emotional dimension is gonna be there, and when you have like acknowledge that, then you can start then like more to manage that and think about like how as a supervisor as a leader what can you do to like support these moments and of course this too much this 
trying to quantify the work of the nurses was one of like, one of the obstacles mm -hmm. to this these caring connections mm -hmm. because like if you try to quantify like how many how many patients you had like treated today how how many like you know this and that you have like done how many how many boxes can you tick per hour then these caring connections don't count in, in these kind of measures and because of that actually then even the long-term quality of the care can like be worse through because of that because we know that you know that these these residents there they not only need like you know that these boxes to be ticked that they, they also because if they're living there they might not be like many relatives visiting them so the only interaction that they might have throughout the day is art with the nurses and because of their, their quality of life at that stage of their life is quite much dependent on how well the nurses are treating them and whether they have these good moments with the nurses so in that sense like this two quantitative approach to this kind of labor that that work of the nurses is can actually be an like, obstacle for high quality care which also involves this more humane dimension that is not easily measurable mm -hmm. so i hear emotional literacy or even maybe also moral literacy on the side of the supervisors i hear um that and to enable the resonance um, no measurement mania i think henry was much more extreme he kind of really was saying um this is pure work on on uh, Canadian hospitals and uh, the theory that he developed. I, but I think you would resonate a lot of what you say on new public management. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. Come to that. But I wanted to pick up on, on it's a one concept we won't dive into, but I think this notion of co-passion versus compassion was interesting because, again, I think in the way you and you describe enable it and, and emotions can enable on the compassion side, and Jane Dutton and Monica Worland described that very nicely, a, a positive resilience and a positive atmosphere in the company and you say by the by the same token feeling positive emotions together like joy and pride the co-passion can equally enable an emotive spiral of kind of a positive climate that can enable the enchantment i want to throw in one question on enchantment and then go to organizational archetypes because i was a little bit surprised when you you, you actually cite max weber in regards to his point on disenchantment. Of course, Max Weber being a Protestant, when he talked about disenchantment, he was mainly making reference to the loss of religion and the loss of spirituality. When you talk about emotion, I mean, you talk about enchantment, it seems to be mainly about regaining emotions. Is that not again falling short of what Weber actually had in mind, which was much more kind of uh, metaphysical than just um, feeling better? Yeah, but like again, enchantment is again a word that can be like used in, in many many ways, and I guess like the same thing. For example, this calling is another word that in, in the work context that now there's this more kind of like this theological or like metaphysical reading to it, and then there's this more like kind of like psychological and subjective reading to it. So when we sometimes when we talk about the calling, it might people might mean that they have been called by God to do certain certain work. And that's kind of like the original way of like using the word calling in like where, where, when it was originated but nowadays when people talk about calling they might just be talking about more just in a more secular way about you know feeling strongly drawn towards certain work so it's like more a psychological notion and i guess like in the enchantment it's the same thing that you know that the the origin of the word the weberian way of using the word is more related to this more theological and metaphysical context but then in the modern sense, we can also talk, talk more talk about this enchantment as a more 
just an experiment experience that we might have as regards our life in general or, or that we can have in the workplace as well the experience of meaning through the caring for each other and for the common shared purpose but um going to organizational design because one is Antoinette just kind of went into other practices and I want to cite a few from one of your articles where you say um, in order to get to this more positive need fulfillment and emotions um, a number of things organizations can do um, autonomy uh, from the job dimensions theory defined as the degree to which the job provides substantial freedom then you look at skill variety, um, which is about being able to use a number of different skills So the competence um, dimension in the SDT. Then you look at forms of authentic behaviors and person job fit, so people to able to express themselves. Employee involvement that empower individuals for sharing information, developing knowledge, inviting participation. So also the aspects Antoinette mentioned in terms of direct democracy. Um, and then pro-social impact direct contact with the beneficiaries. So again, seeing the impact your work has on the customer or on the client, um, pro-social impact tasks significance in terms of the degree to which the job has a substantial impact on the life and work of other people. So I think you're expanding on this notion, building on SDT, building also on the emotional aspects to kind of let's look at how we can reconfigure organizations. And there's one paper which I wanted you to maybe just share briefly with the audience. You're comparing bureaucracies um, with Henry Minsberg, who was on the on the series here, adhocracies, and he was just rewriting his book on organizational forms. And then you look at self-managed organizations. So these are the three ideal types that you look into. And your argument is that actually self-managed organiza organizations might be more explicit, might, might be more adequate to explain certain new forms of organizing, like the ones we all know from Bootsock to Hire to Valve to Nucor and so on. So from, from uh, Frederick Laluz Thiel to uh, good friend Michele Zaninis and Gary Hamill's uh, Humanocracy um, and others. So could you just briefly describe what is the self-managed organization? What are the boundaries and what are potentially some of the things people need to consider before such a self-managed organization can actually be effective? Yes, so that's that's been one of the newer research interests of mine is the self-managing organizations. And of course, like the, the opposite of those are these like these traditional bureaucratic organizations, which you usually have this quite rigid hierarchy. So there's like one person at the top, and then that person kind of like at the top at the top management team is kind of like defining what the, what are the objectives of the company where are we heading and then they are like delegating tasks to people be, below them and they then these people below them they are delegating tasks to the people below, below them so kind of like the big goal of the organization that the top management has decided that gets translated into more and more narrow tasks and that these individual organizational members are then like accomplishing and through that they are part of this great machinery there are these cogs in the machine as Weber famously put it and then this self-managing organizations are quite the opposite of that in terms of hierarchy because they tend to be organizations where these hierarchical levels are almost absent so there might be like top management but like there's like basically no middle management at all so this Burchork is one of the key examples this this Dutch home care company which has like 10,000 nurses nowadays working for them and they have like this headquarters with less than 50 people 
and then they have like nurses in teams of 12 people and these teams are like com completely autonomous to decide almost all aspects of their work like whether they want to hire new people what what, what how, how are they advertising in the neighborhood and so forth so everything they do they do quite in, in a self-managing way so i'm trying to like understand how can these kind of organizations exist because their existence even their existence goes goes like against quite much of the management wisdom that we have like gathered in the last last hundred years about how the organizations work but how how is it possible that an organization without any middle management how, how are they able to exist and one key thing to like pro probably to acknowledge about these organizations that it's it doesn't mean that you know, it's, it's not doesn't mean that they're like these anarchistic organizations so because like sometimes the kind of like the, when, when when i talk about these organizations the people said hey no that's that's anarchy no nobody's going to be getting anything done and against that time kind of like saying that you no know, there's like two dimensions to organizations one of them is like this degree of hierarchy in the organization other dimension is more about this like how much structure there is in organizations and if you have an like organization which is high on hierarchy high on hierarchy and high on structures that's that classic bureaucratic organization it has like clear clear like, kind of like lines of command and it has like clear like structures but then and, and the opposite of that like low hierarchy and low structure that's that's again and then that's like an like anarchy you know and probably through anarchy there's like not any big task that can be accomplished because then everybody's doing whatever they want there's no structure or anything so individuals might be able to do what individuals do but there's not going to be enough coherence or coordination between their activities to accomplish anything larger but then there's like these interesting cases are then which which are high on one and low on one so if you think about an organization which is high on hierarchy but low on structure that's actually that this aristocracy these classical kingdoms or chiefdoms where if you're on the top of the hierarchy you can do whatever you want it's one it's good to be the king because then you can you know if you want to like want to kill a certain person you can do that because you're the king and nobody can stop you and of course there's certain countries in the world even today which are quite close to that model that you know that if you're at the top of the hierarchy there's no, no rules applied to you and actually that's one of the key key benefits of these bureaucracies where that that in the bureaucracies the rules applied also to those at the top that if you're the top management manager of a modern company certain rules apply to there are certain things that you can do certain things you cannot do there's rules to even to your behavior which was not true in, in the in the medieval times and then the fourth fourth example and then is the organization which is like low on low on hierarchy but still has these structures and that's self-managing organizations so they usually have like quite clear structures there's usually like clear ways of doing things there are certain things that you know in in this burchark the management teams have to have at least 12 people a maximum 12 people if there's going to be more people in your area then you have to split into two teams and there's going to like be certain like structures about how things are done and through that this enough coordination is accomplished so that they, they can like together accomplish something so it's not anarchy it's not like bureaucracy but it's a, it's a model of model of working together where this hierarchy is absent but they're still like they have still these structures through which they it's not necessarily, I think Amy Edmondson in her work on SMOs makes it really clear that certain procedures have to be explicitly articulated and documented, decision-making procedures, task allocation procedures, role agreements, and so on. But I think 
you also cite Paul Adler's work, and I think Paul very makes it clear, especially with this new archetype of um, collaborative community, that it's not just formal structures. It can also be to a large degree in terms of kind of trust relationships and informal structures. And I think if yeah, you look yeah. at Bootsock, which of course Jost de Block being kind of uh, one of our kind of um, good friends, so to speak, um, Bootsock has very strong norms that when people don't comply with those often unwritten norms and very often related to the caring for the patient, of course, um, they will very quickly be fired or kind of find that as an environment they don't want to work in. So I think there is a lot of um, structure, Maybe. but potentially also very strong norms in the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. This reactor is this one Finnish like IT company that I've been studying quite carefully. It has like some 600 employees and again, like no middle management at all, but like these autonomous teams. But there's like, there's quite this strong notion, like what is the reactor way of doing things? So a phrase you hear in the organization, that's not how we do things in reactor. You know, somebody might come in like, you know, see something happen and say, hey, that's not how we do things in reactor. And you know, that there's no explicit rules about that. There's like, you know, there's not, not like code book that you can like go to, to refer to what, what, what are the things, how things are done at reactor. But people have this like in their mind, a certain view of how things are done here. And then when somebody does something which doesn't apply, that doesn't comply with this implicit image, then they like in, intervene and say that, hey, now you, now you broke the rule. So that I'm, actually... I'm afraid we don't have any further time in this section because it's 15 minutes only. Yeah. So we have to, all, all you do I this have, section. I just then... want to say one point and then you don't so... have to uh, elaborate on that, but I think it would be useful this, to distinguish um, the market type of coordination and the trust-based type of coordination. Because for your compassion and co-passion, one might be superior to the other if you factor in self-determination theory. But um, obviously we don't have time to go in there. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, I agree. I agree that Lena, for instance, higher is like completely different company than like this Burchok or yeah. this reactor. Yeah. So this Burchok reactor seem to be applying quite much the same model based on, you know, they care about the employees. They want to be the best place for the employees and so forth. But the higher has like much more this internal market-based model. So both of them are like kind of like low hierarchy, low hierarchy companies. Both of them are like very far from the bureaucratic company, but they are separate yeah. types, of, separate idol types still. Like, yeah. I don't know what, 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 how should we call each one of them, uh, the other, but they are separate. Yes, you again appointed to one other person who was on the series here, Emanuele Quintarelli. He's working with uh, Simone Cicero and Bill Fisher, very close with Haya. So if you want any detailed information on how Haya works internally, which is quite fascinating, um, they might be uh, interesting people okay. To, okay. to who we can easily connect you to. Um, on the... I just wonder, do you want to maybe with one sentence and then Antoinette, maybe over to you for the final section. Um, what were some of the boundaries or limitations or things that people need to be aware of when they want to move towards SMOs that you found from your work? Because it was quite interesting that you said not, not everybody might easily be able to do SMO. Yeah, so it's probably, uh, probably like at least like you have to have like motivated workforce who know how, how to do their work. So, you know, if, you, if people are not motivated, then giving them like high levels of autonomy and not having like too much oversight might lead to people not doing, doing their work very well because, if, because then they don't have the motivation or that. So, so it works probably better in like in places where, where people are kind of like professionals, they have like 
they have like high levels of education and high levels of commitment towards their work. Nurses is a good example. You know, if, if you're a nurse, you usually already know how to treat the patients and you already have like quite high motivation to make sure that they get better. So they don't need so much oversight. But for example, in, in one of these companies that I've been studying, they kind of like the core stuff was, was like quite self-determined self and autonomous, but then there were like these students who came in like just like take care of like some like quite mundane tasks and for them they needed like more traditional management because these students they came in they were just in it for the money they were like going to stay a couple of months and because of that they didn't have like same commitment and this as these other employees and because of that they realized that hey, these people we have to have a bit more oversight there so that's one factor is this kind of like how motivated and competent your your, your employees are and then there's like other factors like how how, how can kind of like interdependent these various functions are? So like in the, in the nursing example, for example, one nursing team here doesn't have to know anything about what, what this other nursing team here is doing. But in a car assembly company, what this team does here affects very much what this team, team, team can affect here. So they need much more like coordination be, between it, each other. So it's easier to implement this self-management in, in places where these interdependencies are low. It can be done even when it's like interdependencies are high, but it's much more complicated and requires much more solutions, like these explicit solutions to make sure this coordination is accomplished without these middle managers taking care of this coordination. Okay, um, thank you very much. So I lead over to the last section already, uh, or we already had quite a lot of time from your side, <laughs> where it's about becoming good. How, how could we transform to the good? And I think um, there are a number of things which I found very interesting, but let me make sure that I can go to one point, and that's to leadership, because I did like this idea of the logic of care, also for leaders. I could also imagine that uh, this is not only for care homes, an important logic. And among other things, um, here again, the, the system psychodynamics or the relational ontology played a huge role. And you were suggesting that systems intelligence can be a way to navigate that in a, in a more practical fashion. So maybe you tell us a little bit what systems intelligence is, but also how to acquire that, how can we develop that? Yeah, so the systems intelligence is this notion that has been developed by this, this professor Esa Saarinen, who was like my PhD supervisor, and this Raimo Hamalainen, who's another pro professor. And the idea was that they, they came, or this, especially this Raimo Hamalainen comes from the system sciences, and he was kind of like arguing that, that we can like examine systems from the outside, try to figure out like how these systems work. But at, at the same time, we are actually already living inside systems, so we also need like this way of looking at the systems that we are embedded in and one key part of this system usually are these human systems that you know that we have there's like certain ways of interacting with with other people and quite often when there's some problem in the interaction it's not about you it's not about me but it's about there's some system that has generated between us that you tend to do so say, say certain things to me which trigger certain buttons in me which make me interact in a certain way mm -hmm. and because of that we end up all the time in the same kinds of fights you know it can happen in the workplace it can happen in you know at, at home or wherever and like, like a non-system intelligence way of dealing with this thing is to think about you know it's either you or it's me one of us has a problem it's but 
but that the system intelligence recognizes this interaction as the systemic thing where one interaction feeds into another creating these kind of like recurring loops of interaction and because of that to treat these situations we don't have to look at we shouldn't be only looking at the individuals but but we should be, should be looking at the system with that these individuals had created with each other how can we intervene there so within the therapy community there's like this therapy modes of therapy where they are not only treating the person oneself especially when it's like you know if, the, if a teenager has some problems then only giving therapy to the teenager might not be as helpful as taking the whole family in there because usually if the teenager is having some problems it usually has something to do with the dynamics within the family so only, only treating one one member of that dynamic is not as helpful as looking at the wholeness and trying to figure out what what is what is what can be done in the wholeness so i guess like that will be like what this system internet chess is about like re realizing these systems where we ourselves are one part of the system contributing to the system through our ways of interacting and i guess like the first step of becoming more system intelligence is just becoming aware of these systems becoming aware that it's like it's not about the other person it's not about me but it's about how we two together create this system and then observing that system and trying to figure out attune to it and trying to figure out what happens in that and then trying to figure out what can be done differently to make sure that the same kind of problems don't arrive again I, I was just wondering because you were also um, teaching assistant so maybe you can still tell us how he teaches that because i don't see us in uh, academia really teaching that types of systems intelligence and it has to start early i guess so yeah of course like it's it's not easy to develop that kind of skill like system intelligence so probably like one way i think that this ssr and i was doing doing it it was just through telling these stories where like something happened between two persons or something happened in, in, a, in a group or something like that and then telling about these like more inventive solutions that somebody was able to come up with and like first setting up the situation and then seeing how, how, how things don't go wrong and then like then then like telling what 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 was the way that somebody was able to like solve the situation in a more system and intelligent fashion so I guess like that that was the main way of like teaching that just like true examples of highly system intelligent action okay. because there wasn't at least at that point there wasn't like any clear kind of theoretical guideline that hey these are the three steps that you need to take but it was more just how people had like been applying this model in real life situations now i would have expected of course that you come up with inquiry because i think that's exactly <laughs> what you do in reflective inquiry um, but maybe you can tell um, us a little bit more how scientific inquiry can go more towards this pragmatist inquiry where you also, of course, have to acknowledge that you are in the system, but also have to see it from the outside. Yeah, of course, like scientific inquiries, as Dewey said, that Dewey said that it's like, it's not that it's not like qualitatively different from like any any type of inquiry but it's just like that science is our best kind of like the most refined way of doing inquiry that like through trial and error we have found out the most most or, or the best ways of doing inquiry that like give us the most warranted kind of conclusions about certain factors you know that we have realized that hey that if we want to test how effective a certain drug is 
it's not helpful to just like you know not it's it's helpful to have this control group because like then we know that whatever like developments happen in the people it's not it's about the not about some external factor but it's about the the drug itself so somebody came up with that idea at some point you know 500 years ago we didn't have that that kind of like insight that that's the way to test effectiveness of drugs so science is that this probably the most refined way of doing inquiry that we have like come up and of course like when when i say science it sounds that there's like one method of science but of course different scientific fields that highly different met, come up with like highly different methods and the, and and in different in, like different situations very different modes of inquiry represent the, like the best possible inquiry to a, a answer that kind of scientific question that we have mm -hmm. and i guess like the what the scientist can do then is like this acquire this like more, more practical this attitude towards one science that you know don't seek the kind of like don't think that you have found the final truths and don't even seek the final truths but like rather be aware that like all, all knowledge that you have is fallible but then still trying to find out better ways of inquiry and like also re realize that even the modes of inquiry need to be like refined from time to time that you the way that you are doing your inquiry now might sound like the best way of doing it right now but you might realize in 10 years that there's even a better way of getting even more reliable knowledge about the topic that you're interested in to start with the practice yeah no go ahead <laughs> it brings us to the end already and um it's it, it has been fascinating frank and i think again as i said at the beginning your inquiry to a degree mirrors our own thinking it's funny that you cite camus right so albert camus who was uh, the absurdist uh, this notion of life doesn't have meaning but we have a wonderful choice to make our life wonderful as ben zander writes in the art of possibilities right it's it's to a degree we can as you say construct stories of our life not just searching for purpose but searching for something that re-enchants why we're here and it's interesting in Camus most famous work probably on the plague where people suffer they are they are constrained in a small village and the plague is there and people are dying but after a while the protagonists rally around the, their almost like their innate humanity and bring even in the most dire circumstances with death in front of their doors bring the wonderful life back and I think this is the chance and to a degree I, I like the way you've gone about it because uh, like a pragmatist holding theories lightly you're experimenting but always with I would if I can say that without sounding patronizing with a sparkle in your eyes searching for <laughs> the good and also searching I think you said it in your book um, you, you, at the, the bar story if someone asked you how to bring my, meaning into my life is make your, your um, life meaningful for others all right, so start to yeah. care for others, to start to look at how you're creating wider benefits. And I think that's also what we are feeling very strongly. So it's not just an individual story. It's a we're weaving a story together here. And that's also like in the Camus plague, like I think the most of the protagonists there, they, when, first they might be like, you know, do whatever they want or, or become like very disenchanted by the situation. But in the end, they realize that the way to make that situation meaningful for them is true trying to help the victims, try to do something, contribute somehow to the situation, make it a, be make it a better place for everybody. So yeah, I think that, that work resonates in, in a way with this idea of key way of making one's life meaningful is through making yourself meaningful to other people. I think, uh, again, Carol Sanford comes to mind who says, we acquire purpose in the system. 
we don't have purpose in us by, but by stepping into the system in a specific role with a specific intention that's actually how we produce purpose because that is somehow as you say meaning making means relatedness to something else and relatedness to something that matters is probably the best way that we can acquire that meaning and here at the end as always we want to close if you allow us you out with a little quiz so five quick questions uh, with uh, uh, 10 second answers to okay. create closure <laughs> as we've been told by the psychologists we always need closure on these calls so um five quick questions for you um and let me start you off because i said at the beginning you've been citing from many of the movies that we really like so what movie should people watch to gain a fruitful perspective on a good life ferris bueller day off fight club or is your site from a wonderful life <laughs> i think all all three because like there's not one one answer to this question but you need several answers to find your own way of living uh, i would agree with that get a, get a big bag of popcorn and watch them all because they're beautiful yes. movies to lead a good life we should a follow god b follow your brain c follow your heart d follow virtues or e trial and error follow your heart but then apply the scientific method of trial and error nice yeah given you have avoided the question of religion at all costs let me ask you if you had to choose a religion uh, to follow uh, which one would you choose catholics buddhist baha'i or Rudolf Steiner type anthroposophy? <laughs> <laughs> Complicated question. I, I don't know. We're Given my this, of course, copiously. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know. It's that's too, too hard. To answer. <laughs> I take that as non. Okay, yeah. there was no non-option, but I guess that's what it is. <laughs> Okay. because we didn't uh, sneakily as that was the one paper we didn't mention did, we didn't manage to look into will ai ever replace managers and no no because still there's humans have this capability of reflection that that the ai's at least at the moment don't have like any clue about so they're still like even though they, they're they're able to calculate things they're able to you know even like detect patterns but this more reflective reframing of the situation, realizing what are the goals that we need to be, what are the goals worth it to force doing here? That's something that the AI don't have any answers yet. Nice, I'm, I'm glad we ticked that box as well in the time that we had. And then the final question as always, if you had a magic wand, and if there was one thing you could change to make the world better, what would it be? Um, I will bring highly functioning democracy to every each and every country in the world. That's a good nice. start, I think. Yeah. Institution then, democracy. Yeah, because then people have, would have like in every country would have better chance to make their vision of a good life into reality. Nice. The I think again, we, we take that as an encouragement that it's worthwhile what we're trying to do, which is bringing exactly that into organizations, which are like yeah. Yeah. little societies in their own right, in many cases. And with that, Frank, I would say, I mean, thank you so much. We have really tried to drag you through 25 years of writings and, and, <laughs> and, and variants of your thinking, which probably you cannot even remember anymore. But of course, we had them all on our desks. So it's been brilliant. Thank you very much. And also, I want to thank you for bringing 
a bit of juvenile, that sounds patronizing, a bit of a fresh spirit and um, less of this. Uh, we had many kind of people coming from more theological tradition, less of the powder and ancient uh, rituals of philosophy into the field. So big thanks for that. Um, I'm <laughs> final word to you and then we will close. Oh, um, just um, thank you. And um, I have maybe some words after we have closed off, but thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. It was a great conversation. I, I think like no interviews have been like going through so many of my papers in such a time. So that, that was interesting. Very much. How do you say thank you and goodbye in Finnish? Kiitos ja näkemiin. Kiitos ja näkemiin for everybody who's been listening. Thank you very much for following us. And again, speak to you all soon. Take care.